0: So, we've reached the end of this six week series on Advent and Christmas, and we've been using a book that rather annoyingly has nine different things to say about it. And the verses we're looking at today are ones that often get squeezed out, I think, because they don't really seem to add very much. But Luke begins his gospel by telling us in chapter one that every little detail in this book matters, and that if Things he says seem like they don't add very much. In fact, they they do well belong in this well-structured, orderly account that he writes for us. So today what I want to do is to take Luke chapter 2. We'll zoom in on these four little verses. And we'll see how, in fact, they they tie many themes all together. And uh, as we read Luke 2, I do invite you to use one of your ribbons to mark that. You'll be helped as well if you have that companion chapter from Leviticus 12 open at the same time. Because I think Luke 2 assumes a very detailed working knowledge of Leviticus 12, and you will not see the magnitude of what it is Luke wants you to see uh, in chapter 2, unless you have Leviticus 12 as well. So we've got two readings there for you. You'll flip between them. Luke 2, verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus So the Jewish law required this and if you do that first flick to Leviticus 12 uh, verse 3 Leviticus 12:3 you'll see very clearly it says on the eighth day the flesh dot 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 shall be circumcised So Mary and Joseph very simply are doing the right thing and it looks odd to us but this is what the law said they had to do and in the ancient Near East this was a common practice you, we get a family or a tribe, and they would encounter one another, and they would form a deal or a treaty or a covenant, and then they would mark that covenant with a physical sign on the flesh. Uh, the greater party would offer a deal to the weaker party. Once uh, that had been agreed, the deal would be sealed with a sign, and the, the flesh would be marked with a scar or a brand or, or some, some other mark or tattoo of some kind, each party bearing the same sign as a symbol that you had formed this bond, something unique that had made you, once previously separate entities, one body. Now, long ago, God formed a covenant exactly like that, just like all the other covenants with Abraham. And under the old covenant, God gave to the people, the Jews, the sign of circumcision, to remind them on their flesh that they had become one with God himself. It was a reminder to obey his laws and a reminder of his love and his mercy and his grace whenever they wandered away. It was always to call them back to obedience, back to a relationship with him, back to living under blessing, back to experiencing joy and to repent and to experience all that God had to offer for them. And a whole series has been about this, about repenting, turning back, and then experiencing joy. And uh, Luke has, has gone over this over and over again. I think especially, very nicely, he sets up this theme through the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 1. Where Luke says, or Zechariah says, uh, verse probably 71 or something like that. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people dot, 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 to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. There's the word, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. So Luke is thinking about covenant. He's thinking about signs of the covenant, about circumcision and marks on the flesh and letting us know that in doing this to Jesus, Mary and Joseph are simply being obedient to the law and making a statement of faith they are going to bring up this child right. They're going to raise him under the law. They're going to show him the blessings that come from being in a relationship with God under the law. But there's always been something missing, something not quite right about the covenant. Because in all of these years and all of these signs, uh, by this point in history, 2,000 years since that first Abrahamic covenant, since that first circumcision, in all of these years, all of these boys, there's always been something missing. Because remember, a true covenant sees a deal sealed with a sign that is borne by both parties as the greater and the weaker party become one and join together in covenant Both parties bear the scar, the brand, the tattoo, the sign of the covenant, and obviously that part of this covenant had gone unfulfilled until now because they did not just circumcise their boy, they just circumcised their God. Luke is trying to shock us with the physicality, with the fleshliness of the incarnation of God. This is outrageous news, what they just did. Born under the law, to fulfill the law. Born in the flesh, to identify with the flesh and to bear on the flesh the mark of the covenant of God. God becomes one of us and experiences what we experience. Why? Why? Luke just lets that hang. He moves on now to his next point. He moves on to the name. And he records, we're still in verse 21, that Jesus is not a name that Mary and Joseph chose. Rather, he tells us, it is the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The only baby ever to choose his own name is Jesus. That's a remarkable thought, that it was his idea. Why Jesus? When you think of all of the the names that God could have chosen for himself at his incarnation, you know, you think about all the great names in the Bible. Why not David, the king? Why not Abraham, the original father of the covenant? Why not Moses uh, or Noah? Why not Adam? That would be a good one to restore all flesh. Why why Jesus? Jesus uh, is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. Or, or Yeshua, maybe, as they would say it. On one level, a very ordinary name, Joshua. We have three Joshuas in our church. Uh, most weeks, they compete to see who's the most grown-up, and very frequently, Mr. Gurdy's wins. But uh, it is a special name, uh, Yeshua, Joshua, because it contains his wife la- wife's laughing. Uh, it, Joshua contains the name of God, uh, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. Uh, A yeah, uh, huh, uh, uh, huh. In Hebrew, Yahweh, the name of, of God. When Moses is asked uh, in the burning bush, or to the burning bush, uh, when Moses asks the burning bush, what is your name, God? God replies, Yahweh. My name uh, in English is the first person form of the verb to be. It is I am. Moses says, you know, who shall I say has sent me on this quest? And God says, I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. I am is my name. It means I exist. I am to be. And it means I hold in existence all things. I am the sovereign and the potentate of time. The name I am, or Yahweh, becomes so holy in Hebrew culture that they would not even utter the name. And so therefore, any child called Joshua or Yeshua containing that name of God is a very important name Indeed, the wonderful thing about Jesus, as the Greek form of this word, Joshua, is not only does it contain the name of God, I am, but it also contains the only thing that God can do for you, which is to save. Jesus means, I am saves. It means God saves, or the Lord, the Lord he saves. Luke's second letter, the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, says, There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So the name that God chooses, Jesus, is is showing us in a name what his birth is showing us in the flesh, that God has arrived in our midst to rescue us. The name and the birth are showing the same thing. These are the themes on Luke's mind that he's setting up in the letter we've got covenant, and we've got rescue as he reaches back into the depths of salvation history and looks forward to their consummation in Christ. We have sin, this great problem. We have salvation, this great solution. We have revelation that the temple is coming down and God is in our midst. And now the missing component, we have redemption as we turn to verse 22. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Flick to Leviticus again. As you do, you'll see there, chapter 12, verse 2. If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as at the time of her menstruation. So giving birth, the Levitical code tells us, is an act that would defile you. It would render you ritually or ceremonially unclean for a while. Uh, Anything really involving blood would do this. Any uh, kind of touching of blood or bleeding or condition of bleeding would render you ritually uh, unclean. And verse 4 explains especially, she shall not touch anything holy. Obviously, you can't Go to the temple if you're impure, and nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. Now, the sanctuary was the dwelling place of God. The most holy ground was the temple. Not just symbolic, like a church is, but real. This, uh, Mark Sayers describes the temple as a portal to the throne room of heaven here on earth. Like it is actually that little tiny bit at the front of the front of the front of the temple, actually heaven on earth. You go in there, impure, you die. Advance to judgment day without grace. That is the temple and the power and the presence of God. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. And uh, with anything like this, of course, blood especially would be a barrier to your inclusion within the worship life of the community. You don't go to the front bit or the middle bit or the outer bit or even outside in the street. You go away if you've been in contact with blood. You do not belong in that place. In 1988, my parents took me to a fancy hotel. Uh, it was called the Falmouth Beach Hotel, very beautiful. In front of the hotel, if you could picture it perfectly laid, was this elaborate white stone esplanade. And it's south-facing, so it caught all of the, the heat and the sun, and it had a, an uninterrupted view of the headland and the beach and the seaside and, and the sun setting on the, on the ocean. And that the best restaurant in this beautiful hotel had enormous floor-to-ceiling glass uh, window panes right at the front, overlooking the, the esplanade and the and the sea and the sun and, and all the beautiful stuff and of course, the best, most romantic tables for two were all set up uh, in the in the windows at the at the front, right there, very beautiful. the design floor, i think however, at least from an engineering perspective and you 'd appreciate this Stu, was that the very large glass windows and the very Reflective, beautiful white stone esplanade and the very gorgeous south-facing sunlit view made the restaurant incredibly hot. And uh, picture the scene, will you? Uh, Sommelier is pouring and decanting the wine. Uh, The the Bangles' latest song is playing on the CD player. Can you feel my heart beating? It's just a very romantic scene. Enter a slightly out of shape undiagnosed kid with massive 1980s glasses who's just spent a whole day out in the sun gorging himself on seaside treats. As the menus arrived in that very warm room, I told my parents I wasn't quite feeling the full quid. Not all there. So they ordered for me something from the menu, they said, would probably help, a consomme, which, uh, with hindsight, I think is fair to describe as both the greasiest and the saltiest of French soups. With the candy, with the heat, with the soup, I began to feel extremely ill, so I went outside, and predictably, as soon as the fresh air hit me, I threw up all over the beautiful white stone esplanade with the south-facing sunlit view in front of the floor-to-ceiling glass windows uh, where all the couples were seated and the tables for two. Uh, Bad enough... I remember looking up, and this is seared into my brain as a seminal childhood memory. Over the the shameful crust of this foul-baking quiche before me were the horrified faces of all of the romantic couples whose eyes had been inexorably drawn towards this appalling spectacle in front of them. And I think frequently about all of the ways in which I defiled that place that night. I spoiled my dinner, I spoiled my parents' dinner, and they're watching today, and I do apologize, although you ordered the consomme, just saying. Uh, I spoiled many dinners that night, I think probably I spoiled at the very least one marriage proposal, I should imagine. Um, I spoiled the restaurant, I spoiled the whole hotel, and actually some weeks later, for some reason, it closed down, and no one knows why. Uh, It could have been me. As I've grown in my theological understanding of the majesty of God, my only crumb of comfort is it could have been worse. I could have given birth and gone to temple. That would have been worse. It would have been unimaginably worse. A disgraceful, shameful, outrageous, deadly defilement to go anywhere near that holy place in a condition like this. And here's the problem. Mary has not merely gone near to the dwelling place of God, passed by on the outside, or even gone into the most holy place. She has just given birth to God himself. And she is holding and feeding God. It is the most outrageous thing imaginable. She is touching God. She is closer to God than anyone has ever been before. And she has been defiled. Think about it even more. If the thing that defiled her was the birth, what did it do to the one being born? It is outrageous that God himself would be born in the flesh. There's no human story that gets close to how appallingly outrageous that really is. We're being told that God Himself has just been defiled in the most shameful way, and yet it was His idea. He planned this. So, in just a couple of verses, every category that they had is turned upside down. It, this is wild. Uh, And these are two verses that often we overlook because there's better Christmas stories to tell, but every single category has been turned upside down. And what else does Luke record still in verse 22? That Leviticus prescribed a way for them to be restored. There is a way back from the most shameful things that you have done. And uh, Mary's time of purification concludes, as it should, verse 24 tells us, with a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now Again, this is why I want Leviticus 12 in front of you because Luke's telling us that this is according to the law. So let's read the law as it says Leviticus 12, when the days of her purifying are completed, dot, 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 she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of the meeting, uh, that is the temple, a lamb a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. Two sacrifices, one to give thanks and one to purify. Yes, a bird, but look closely, Leviticus says also, a lamb. And in Mary and Joseph's case, Luke has just told us, there is no lamb, something's wrong. Now, Leviticus goes on to say uh, that we this can be okay sometimes. Verse 8 says, if she cannot afford a lamb, Then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So Luke is letting us know in this tiny little detail something about Mary and Joseph. Too poor to keep the whole of the law. They take the exemption instead. They can't afford a lamb. They don't have one. So they give as much as they can give which is almost nothing that reveals the kind of family that jesus chose to join he could have been born anywhere anywhere but he chose that now second lesson this morning james the brother of jesus who grew up in the same family uh, says this has god not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom what i think luke wants you to see is that god can choose anyone and that our human merits are not a part of the equation. God chooses you. And if you were worse, God chooses you. If you defiled the Falmouth Beach Hotel, God chooses you. If you defiled your God, God chooses you. And I think Luke wants us to see the lamb, in fact, is not missing. The lamb is lying in Mary's arms. It's not a lesser sacrifice, actually. It's the greatest sacrifice we'll ever see, as God himself provides the lamb. God is the lamb. God is the sacrifice. Now, there's a song, isn't there, that hangs a question over every Advent and Christmas. It's not the bangles. It's not eternal flame, unfortunately. Uh, Mary, did you know? There's this question, like we sing it every year and there's no answer, and it drives me mad. I love the song, it's very clever. I just wish it would have a conclusion. Mary, did you know that the child you delivered would soon deliver you? Very clever. Did you know when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God? Mary, did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb, and the sleeping child you're holding is the great I Am? Yeah, of course. She just called him Jesus. An angel came and said, he'd like to be called Jesus, please. And then her cousin went wild, and then her fetuses, her cousin's fetus jumped for joy, and then Zechariah, the great priest, gives this huge song about how this fulfills every aspect of the Abrahamic covenant down to the circumcision. So I like to think the answer is yes. Mary is a great theologian, and... This is the fulfilment of so many promises all bound up into this one little moment, into Jesus himself. I think she knew, having identified with our flesh at his conception and our sin at his birth, having been marked on the flesh on the eighth day under the law as a sign that he will fulfil the whole of the law, bearing the very name of God and at the same time describing the only thing that God can do, which is to save, bringing the very presence of God to us, there is now a temple lying in Mary's arms. And yet, instead of that causing our judgment and death, it ends up purifying us and presenting us before the Lord as whole. I very much doubt she understood every facet of this. No one can. I'm pretty sure she knew enough, though. Not just that Jesus is the name of God that he chose for himself, but that Jesus is the name that he chose for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, there are no human stories that can come close the horror of our sin before you. And no experience of defiling a temple comes close to the greater defilement of our sin. And yet you, Lord Jesus Christ, placed yourself in the midst of flesh and sin, of squalor and poverty and shame. And you did so to present yourself as the perfect sacrificial lamb once and for all. Lord Jesus, you took on our flesh to redeem us. And we have nothing to say, nothing to do except to utter your name in wonder and in thanks. Lord Jesus, we worship you. Amen.